You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Activism and other cyber attacks continue against Russian targets, but some may have gone too far. An initial access broker in the criminal-to-criminal market, Black Matter may be working with Black Cat. CISA offers a warning and advice to SATCOM operators. NIST offers some guidance on industrial control system security. Johannes Ulrich reminds us to patch our backup tools. Our guest is Armando Say from Missy with sights on maritime port security. And Rear Admiral Mayhoff, call your office. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 18th, 2022. Anonymous has resumed or continued its campaign of defacement against Russian networked closed circuit cameras rigging them to display such messages as Putin is killing children, 352 Ukraine civilians dead, Slava Ukraini, Vice reports. Russian government websites have also come under attack. In an unusual announcement, Russia's Ministry of Digital Development and Communications said the attacks were unprecedented. They appear, from the account offered by the Washington Post, to be a mixture of distributed denial-of-service attacks and website defacements. A statement from the ministry, apparently addressing the DDoS attacks, said, quote, We are recording unprecedented attacks on the websites of government authorities. If their capacity at peak times reached 500 gigabytes earlier, it is now up to one terabyte. That is two to three times more powerful than the most serious incidents of this type previously recorded, end quote. Among the website defacements was one affecting the Russian Emergency Situations Ministry website, whose content was changed. The ministry's hotline number was replaced by a heading Come Back from Ukraine Alive, followed by a number Russian soldiers could call for assistance should they be interested in desertion. It's not always clear which actions are those of hacktivists and which are conducted by Ukrainian digital services. Wired gives high marks to Kyiv's Ministry of Digital Transformation in what amounts to a mash note to a government agency run by tech-savvy freaks who've proven themselves to be a formidable war machine. The closeness of Ukraine's cyber operators to NATO hasn't escaped Russian notice either. Moscow's ambassador to Estonia, where NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence is located, sees more evidence of Western plotting and blackmail, bleeping computer reports. Ambassador Lipayev explained to TASS in an interview today, quote, Our suspicions on this score have turned out to be correct. 
This first step will certainly entail others pursuing the aim of converting Ukraine into a stronghold for political, economic, ideological, and military blackmail of Russia. End quote. Cloud security firm Sneak has found malicious code in the NPM open-source ecosystem that seems motivated by a hacktivist determination to strike Russia and its increasingly shy junior partner Belarus. Sneak explained, quote, On March 15, 2022, users of the popular Vue.js front-end JavaScript framework started experiencing what can only be described as a supply chain attack impacting the NPM ecosystem. This was the result of the nested dependencies Node-IPC and Peace-Not-War being sabotaged as an act of protest by the maintainer of the Node-IPC package. This security incident involves destructive acts of corrupting files on disk by one maintainer and their attempts to hide and restate that deliberate sabotage in different forms. While this is an attack with protest-driven motivations, it highlights a larger issue facing the software supply chain. The transitive dependencies in your code can have a huge impact on your security. End quote. Hacker News explains that Node IPC is a prominent node module used for local and remote interprocess communication with support for Linux, macOS, and Windows. It has over 1.1 million weekly downloads. An NPM manager wrote and published an NPM module that he described as follows, quote, This code serves as a non-destructive example of why controlling your node modules is important. It also serves as a non-violent protest against Russia's aggression that threatens the world right now. This module will add a message of peace on your users' desktops, and it will only do it if it does not already exist just to be polite. End quote. At the very least, Sneak says, this particular form of protest calls into question the trustworthiness of the maintainer, who goes by the hacker name Rhea Evangelist, and his other contributions. Sneak concludes, quote, Sneak stands with Ukraine, and we've proactively acted to support the Ukrainian people during the ongoing crisis with donations and free service to developers worldwide, as well as taking action to cease business in Russia and Belarus. That said, intentional abuse such as this undermines the global open-source community and requires us to flag impacted versions of Node IPC as security vulnerabilities. End quote. Google's Threat Analysis Group is investigating a financially motivated, that is, criminal, initial access broker its researchers are calling Exotic Lily. The group is working with the gang known variously as Fin12 and Wizard Spider, best known as proprietors of the Conti ransomware. Exotic Lily has exploited a vulnerability in Microsoft MSHTML. Security researchers with Cisco Talos describe a suggestive convergence between Black Cat malware and the Black Matter Darkside gang. Black Cat has poo-pooed other attempts to link them to Black Matter and its Darkside ancestor, denying that it's just a rebranding of Black Matter and insisting that it's a new team made up of alumni from other ransomware-as-a-service groups. But in one respect, at least Talos seems to have the goods on them. Black Matter was an early adopter of Black Cat. The researchers write, quote, Black Cat seems to be a case of vertical business expansion. In essence, it's a way to control the upstream supply chain by making a service that is key to their business, the ransomware-as-a-service operator, better suited for their needs and adding another source of revenue. 
Vertical expansion is also a common business strategy when there is a lack of trust in the supply chain. There are several cases of vulnerabilities in ransomware encryption and even of backdoors that can explain a lack of trust in ransomware as a service. One particular case mentioned by the Black Cat representative was a flaw in DarkSide Black Matter ransomware, allowing victims to decrypt their files without paying the ransom. Victims used this vulnerability for several months, resulting in big losses for affiliates. End quote. CISA and the FBI have advised satellite communications operators to take a number of steps to increase the security of their systems. For immediate action, they recommend that operators take the following steps today. Use secure methods for authentication, enforce principle of least privilege, review trust relationships, implement encryption, ensure robust patching and system configuration audits, monitor logs for suspicious activity, and ensure incident response, resilience, and continuity of operations plans are in place. It's familiar advice, but nonetheless valuable for having been offered before. Basic cyber hygiene is always a good idea. The alert doesn't explicitly mention the Russian threat to satellite systems, but as Security Week points out, it's likely that the warning was prompted by the ongoing investigation of probable interference with Viasat service in Ukraine and parts of Eastern Europe. It's significant that the agencies recommend reading the recent annual threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community for what it has to say about state-sponsored threats to satellite systems. NIST has released SP-1800-10, Protecting Information and System Integrity in Industrial Control System Environments, Cybersecurity for the Manufacturing Sector. The document is noteworthy for communicating its advice by walking its audience through 11 attack scenarios that cover physical, network, and software supply chain avenues of approach. And finally, the UK's Defense and Home Secretaries, Ben Wallace and Priti Patel, respectively, separately entered Microsoft Teams meetings, which Mr. Wallace said had been properly set up, during which they believed initially that they were talking to Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmyl. The Telegraph reports, while the person he was speaking with looked like Mr. Shmyl and was sitting in front of a Ukrainian flag, the defense secretary grew suspicious when the person who looked like Shmyl began asking about British naval deployments and Ukrainian intentions. Presumably, the real Prime Minister Shmyl wouldn't need the UK to tell him what his government's intentions were. Mr. Wallace ended the call after eight minutes and has ordered an investigation. Ms. Patel's experience was similar. The Guardian's account of the incidents considers them hoaxes, leaving open the question of whether Russian services were behind them, but it's equally severe about the security measures that made it possible for an imposter to get through to members of the cabinet. So, a question. Are phone pranks more or less credible when they arrive through business collaboration tools? If the calls were the work of Russian intelligence services, it represents something new. Who expected Moscow to call in and effectively identify themselves as IP-freely? One would expect more. A call like that might convince Mo Sislak for a minute, but a cabinet minister? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Taking place next week in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is the Maritime and Control Systems Cybersecurity Con Hack the Port 22. The event is put on by MISI, the Maryland Innovation and Security Institute, and Dreamport in support of U.S. Cybercom and its mission partners. The event highlights the importance of securing our maritime ports. Armando Say is director of Dreamport. In 2020 and 2021, there were two um, maritime strategies, one for the Coast Guard and then a national uh, cyber policy for maritime. What we discovered in communications with folks at CISA, Department of Homeland Security, and Coast Guard, actually the Pentagon as well, was not getting enough attention. If you look at the Iranian playbook, uh, Cyber Command playbook that was released, it, it totally pointed out the fact that they were looking to do malicious cyber attacks at maritime ports to disable force projection of their adversaries to disrupt supply chains. In the U.S. alone or the world, like 90% of goods travel through some sort of maritime ports. I mean, they eventually make it onto rail systems and trucking systems, but they, you know, it's transported overseas, you know, um, through, through ships and they get to various shores when we export goods. So you can disrupt entire global and domestic economies regionally and nationally by um, basically attacking a port. There's some reports are saying there's been a 500, you know, 400% increase in threats to maritime ports around the world. You can go all the way back to NotPetya, right, and uh, and, uh, and and all that, right, in Ukraine, uh, which is in the news, obviously, very much today. And it all points to the impact of maritime um, ports as very critical to the U.S. economy and our global ability, but also um, force projection. We deliver a lot of our military goods and supplies when we are, have to project force around the world. 
via ports. You know, tanks and food and fuel and all of those things are, are done through maritime ports in part. And maritime ports connect to rail systems and other surface mount transportation systems. So it's a very interconnected ecosystem. And if you look at any port, take a very close look. I'll give you an example. The port of Tampa in Florida, 70% of Florida's fuel comes through that port. Um, whenever there's a hurricane in Florida and people wonder, why are we running out of gas? It's because all of those tanker ships have moved away from the coast of Florida and all of those fuel trucks waiting to get refueled by those tanker ships um, can't, don't have any, anything to, to, to wait for because the ships aren't coming in until the storm has passed. So things like Colonial Pipeline and the water plant attack um, in the Florida brought very, very keen attention to the fact that, whoa, wait a minute, our ports transport fuel. Um, we offload uh, you know, wastewater and other things, uh, LNG gas. We aren't as prepared as we need to be for a cyber attack that could have the same or worse impact uh, than a hurricane could. The Hack the Port conference kicks off next week in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The CyberWire is a media partner. I'll be attending in person and hosting a session. You can learn more at hacktheport.tech. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. You know, I think um, the message has certainly got out there about uh, backups. You know, ransomware has been top of mind for so many people that I, I suspect there are a few who are out there who aren't doing regular backups. But uh, there's a little more to it than that, as, as you wanted to point out today. Yeah, so backups are important. They're often sort of considered your last line of defense uh, when it comes uh, to ransomware. But keep in mind, backup, it's complex. Uh, it's boring. Uh, so a lot of people don't really pay a lot of attention to it. So in, in addition to just uh, testing that your backups are working, keep an eye on your backup software uh, because uh, one trend that I've seen over the last year is that there are really a lot of vulnerabilities in backup hmm. software. And uh, if you think about it, the, the vulnerability can be either in whatever central platform you use to manage your backups. It may be in the agents that you need to deploy on systems uh, in order uh, to create uh, these backups. All of these components have vulnerabilities. They usually run with elevated privileges hmm. uh, because they need to have access to all of your files on the system. And I think it's a little bit that you know, 
not to have too much of a Star Trek reference, but the undiscovered country <laughs> of how attackers may get into uh, your system. So in addition to attackers outright wiping out backups, we have seen that, of course, uh, quite a few times, they may actually use your backup software as an entry point into your network. I mean, it's not just the the management software. I mean, you should be checking up on the hardware too, right? I mean, I'm thinking about like, uh, you know, Synology systems, things like that. Yeah, these uh, network uh, accessible uh, disk platform storage systems, Synology mentioned QNAP, you know, they, mm-hmm. they have a rich history of vulnerabilities themselves, they often have been already used as an entry point. Uh, like there was this Synolocker and lately, uh, I forgot what it was called, the QNAP was affected by some ransomware software. So um, these platforms are part of it, uh, part of the problem. And the software, like you know, recently IBM Spectrum Protect, uh, they're usually used to update like containers, to backup containers. They had some critical vulnerabilities. Kaseya, Unitrends, uh, they had, uh, I think, back in December vulnerabilities. It's hardly a, a month goes by without one or two sort of really critical vulnerabilities in that kind of software. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's it's worth noting that you're putting that on your schedule, the, the care and maintenance of your backups includes checking to make sure that you can actually restore from them, and but also add to that list that they're up to date. Yeah, and always remember, once a month, delete a file and ask your sysadmins to recover it and see if it works. Hmm. If you don't do that, it will not work once you actually need it. I ran myself in this a few times. So. Yeah, no, I yeah, count on it, right? <laughs> oh, and before you delete that file, make your own backup of it. Yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> right, right. Take it home, store it under the yeah. steps in the attic or whatever. Bring it out. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. that's the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com be sure to check out this weekend's research saturday my conversation is with nathan brubaker from mandiant we're discussing their research one in seven ransomware extortion attacks leak critical operational technology information that's research saturday check it out the Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you.